I am excited to go through tonight's chapter. I thought last week Brent did just a really great job. I echo the words that were said before. Um, just a good reminder. It was convicting. Uh, the discussion of pride and humility, it's, it's always a good thing to, to go back and to think about and to really incorporate that into our uh, remembrance, our remembrance of sin. It's just often we forget sometimes our truest state before the Lord. And so last week, I know we went all the way through chapter four. Tonight, we're not going to go all the way through chapter four like we did last week. Last week, we, uh, you know, Brent was able to emphasize some really important themes and really the, the main important theme of, of Daniel 4. Um, and a lot of that focused on Nebuchadnezzar's response to Yahweh. Right? And so, but tonight, we're going to look at it from the other perspective, God's perspective on Nebuchadnezzar. So we'll go through the same chapter. We're, we're going to hit some of these same verses, but we're going to look at it in a, at a different angle tonight. So uh, hopefully that's given you time to grab your Bibles. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. I want to read through a few verses. We'll kind of set the stage here as we go. So Daniel chapter 4, we'll look at the first three verses here. Now it, It's probably worth a note that if you were to go back to some of the Aramaic texts, this is included in chapter 3. It's like a transitionary sort of uh, passage that goes into chapter 4. But it fits either way, whether this was a part of chapter 4 or not. And we're going to read through it because it actually does give us the proper assessment for the themes in chapter 4. So let's look here. First three verses. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. I think that's pretty much everybody. Peace be multiplied to you. I'll pause there for a second. That sounds very Jewish. I just wanted to point it out. To bless peace on other people. I don't know. Maybe he had an influence. Let's We'll, we'll keep going. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I think this is actually such a wonderful introduction to this chapter. And it's amazing that this comes from Nebuchadnezzar, especially as we read through chapter four. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. What Nebuchadnezzar mentions here is almost a, a recap of what we have been seeing throughout these four chapters. So if we look at this, there's kind of four things that he mentions. Signs, wonders, kingdom, and authority. So chapter one, signs, we had Daniel and his friends abstain, and there was a sign from the Lord that that was good and correct for them to do. Wonders, you have Daniel go before the king and actually explain to the king what he had dreamt. That is definitely a miracle. That is a wonder. The third, which is his kingdom. His kingdom's an everlasting kingdom. In the last chapter, we saw uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as their Babylonian names were. They stood before the king 
in an official capacity there with, a, with all the officials, government officials, and challenged the king and said, our God is greater than you. Our God is greater than your gods. And he is able to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, let it be known that we won't worship anyone else. We won't bow to anyone else. So his kingdom was definitely challenged there. And in chapter 4, as we went through last week, this concept and idea of authority was challenged in chapter 4. So it's very interesting that you have these sort of four things. Is that hard and fast rule? Probably not. But it's something that I thought we would point out as we're kind of leading to this as this sort of ultimate chapter for Nebuchadnezzar and for the stories that he's connected with. I want to skip down to verse 10. So as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. It was a dream that when you read it, sounds weird, doesn't seem like it would be that scary, but there's something that was connecting that dream to him and he knew that there was implication. And so he was troubled by it, right? And so then he calls his magicians and soothsayers and astrologers and Chaldeans and all of them. You could think, why did he just go straight to Daniel? Part of this could have been Daniel, after having such success, probably was allowed to tell them about how to do some of these things. And so he thought, I don't have to bother Daniel. We'll just have all these other guys tell me. And they couldn't do it. So I ended up going to Daniel anyway. So Daniel is brought before him. And Daniel is going to talk to him about this dream. But I want to go here to verse 10. Let's take a look here. It says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. This is a pretty impressive tree. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay down, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. It's also mentioned that the stump is left as sort of this idea that this isn't going to kill the king. He's live. So last week we talked about the vision. This tree is representative of Nebuchadnezzar. He is this tree. It's a pretty impressive tree. It's a big tree. It has fruit enough for everyone. It's a house for the beasts. This is a very this is a tree that people would travel to go see. This is a big deal. And I'm sure if that's where the vision ended, Nebuchadnezzar would feel pretty good about himself. So let, if we recap in these visions, we have a vision of this statue. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. We have this dream where he's this massive tree, very impressive tree. In both of these chapters, chapter two, or I should say in these dreams, in chapter two and in chapter four, uh, it doesn't turn out all that well. And so that tree, though impressive, though massive, though 
though uh, important. It's uh, food for people, it's, or food for all the animals and people, and, for, and it's a house for all these, uh, or a place to live for all these animals. The tree, though it's magnificent, is nothing to someone with an ax. They just come and a declaration is made, chop it down. And it's interesting that it's, the stump is then bound with bronze and iron. There are things that could be said about that. We don't have time for that. But look at this tree. This tree is amazing, right? The interpretation is later given. Daniel gives this interpretation that this tree representing Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall ill. That's putting it very, very lightly. He's going to become like a beast. He's going to live out in the, um, I was going to say outside, just outside, where beasts live, in beastly lands, in beastly places. But he's going to go there. He's going to, uh, you know, his hair is going to grow long. His, his uh, nails are going to grow long. He's going to look ragged. He's going to basically lose his mind. Uh, most of the commentaries that you bring up will, will bring up that there are illnesses that correspond to this. This could be something that Nebuchadnezzar would receive. Um, it's called clinical lycanthropy. Is uh, what is, it's called, it's, an, it's interesting because it's a neurological disease of some kind, but it affects you physically as well. So you lose your mind. You, you do act like a beast. Um, and there will be times if you have this disease that you'll all of a sudden have some lucidness, you'll kind of return to yourself and then leave. So it's thought, okay, maybe Nebuchadnezzar got this. He had it for seven years and then kind of snapped out of it for a bit. And that was the moment he had to repent. And there we go. So that's sort of where that goes. Um, I do want to return back, though, because we've, we've already gone through this chapter and talked about the dream, and we talked about some of the implications there. But I want to talk about one other, one other uh, aspect of this. Let's go back. Let's look at verse um, 13. It says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in my bed. Behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. I want to concentrate on this because there's massive, massive implications here. Now, some of you may have a translation as a different word for watcher. Uh, I think there's some that just say angel. One translation I found said a sentinel, which is pretty neat. That's cool. But uh, a lot, so ESV has watcher. So who is this? It says a holy one. And normally when you have a holy one, that is going to be some sort of an angelic presence. So this is, this is actually one from heaven called a watcher. And some of the other literature uh, from the time, it's also called a wakeful one or someone who's awake and watching. The idea is it's like a guard who doesn't sleep. It keeps watch. And this is not a character. This isn't a type of spiritual being, a type of angelic presence that Nebuchadnezzar would be unfamiliar with. This concept of a watcher, a really powerful angel, is um, also in, in their own culture. They do have these sorts of, sorts of beings. So as we read through this, 
and we see this character show up, comes to make this decree. This is what's going to happen to you. Later on, it seems to actually happen. That is who comes and finally says, hey, it's time. Time for this to take place. One thought is, why? it says it happens a year later. Why did it take a whole year? One thought is, as Daniel said, you, you should repent. And so it could be the Lord gave mercy to give him a year to repent. Apparently he didn't. Whatever reason, this actually does take place. And this watcher does come down and decree this for Nebuchadnezzar. Now we could go take this concept of a watcher and try to figure out what, what's going on here. But I think, you know, we could, we could go linguistically, we could go to different uh, ancient literature, we could do a bunch of different things. But I think it's, it's probably better to just go to a story. That's how we'll remember it better anyway. At least I will. And so we're going to look. This is why we read out of Second Chronicles. So let's, look, let's take a look at Second Chronicles here. I know some of you probably read it in your devotions this week, but we're going to go over it again. That's just a joke, because a lot of us probably haven't spent a lot of time reading in Second Chronicles. It's nice to pop back here every so often. Mary read the first 14 verses of this story. Have you, have you heard this story before? Um, it's not like a hugely famous story. It's actually kind of a weird interaction. So everybody know who Ahab is, King Ahab? Not Ahab searching for a whale. King Ahab. King Ahab. Maybe don't know who that is either. But uh, uh, King Ahab married to Jezebel. Most people know Jezebel if you don't know Ahab. Uh, Ahab was not a good guy. He was a, actually a pretty terrible, terrible person. Um, did not worship the Lord. Um, he often went up against the prophets of God. And in this story, you have this situation where there, he wants to go up and fight uh, Raboth Gilead. And so he's talking to Jehoshaphat, which is just a great name. Just, it's fun to say. Uh, but Jehoshaphat, who is the king in Judah, he actually does worship the Lord. He worships Yahweh. He respects Yahweh. He respects Yahweh's prophets. And so they have this political discussion. Hey, Jehoshaphat. I want to go and attack this other area. Are you with me? Let's go. Jehoshaphat says, yeah, I mean, yeah, let's do this. Let's go. So, but we really should, you know, ask a prophet of the Lord first if we should do this. And Ahab says, no problem. Got you covered. He has all his prophets come and there's 400 of them. And they all say, oh, yes, go and do this thing. And he's like, I want to hear from someone, you know, an actual prophet of Yahweh. You know anything about Ahab? He had tons of prophets that did not worship Yahweh at all. They were Baal worshipers. They were uh, priests of Asherah. They had lots of different, a large variety of other types of priests. So he says, all right, we'll, we'll get some other guys. So there's actually a couple guys that come up and they kind of pretend. They pretend to be um, prophets of Yahweh. They, they pretend and they, 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 they do something interesting, which they, they make these this iron horns, which again, could take us off on a tangent. But the iron horns, that, that's tied pretty closely with Baal. 
this concept, this idea, right? So they fashion these horns and say, look, with these horns you'll go and you'll go and conquer. You will, you'll win. Jehoshaphat says, yeah. You sure you don't have anyone else? They call Micaiah. Micaiah comes. Micaiah is such an interesting character. He doesn't pop up all that often, but Micaiah was someone who's just rotting in prison. He was just sitting in jail. He was in captivity. He was a prophet of the Lord that Ahab hated. And he states it right there. Why? It's because he never prophesies anything good for me. He's always telling me bad things, evil things. I can't stand this guy. Jehoshaphat's like, you probably shouldn't talk like this. Right? Maybe not talk like that. Bring him up. And Micaiah comes before them. And they say, hey, should we go up and, and attack? And he goes, well, let's, let's take a look here. Verse 14 says, when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth Gilead and battle? Go to battle? Or shall I refrain? And he answered, Go up and triumph. They'll be given into your hand. Which is very interesting. That's exactly what all the other prophets said. Ahab knows better. Who knows if it was a tone of voice? I don't know. It could just be that Ahab is suspicious of Micaiah. He's like, you've never prophesied anything good for me before, ever. He says, come on, tell me the truth. What's interesting is I remember going through this passage when I was in Bible school, and the conversation that was had concerning this chapter was, was Micaiah right in lying? That is the dumbest question to ask of this chapter. Everything that happens after is far more interesting. But for some reason, that was the conversation we had. But anyway... Verse 15, but the king said to him, how many times shall I make you, make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And you'll notice there that Lord is all in caps. When you see it all in caps, that is the covenant name Yahweh. It's not the, it's not the title Lord. He actually says here, the name Yahweh. Why don't you tell me the truth in the name of Yahweh? Verse 16, and he said, this is Micaiah talking. He said, actually, this is what I heard from the Lord. I saw all Israel scattered to the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king, said of his, uh, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Verse 18, Micaiah is not done. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of Yahweh. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, to go? Um, oh, that he might go and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Pause here for a second. Okay, let's, let's set the scene properly. Micaiah said, okay, you want to know what I saw? I'll tell you exactly what I saw. I saw a vision, and this vision is the Lord's throne, and there he is seated and gathered around him, our angelic host. 
And the Lord asks a question of this group and says to them, all right, how should we do this? Ahab is going to fall at Ramoth Gilead. He's going to die. How shall we do this? He leaves it open for these ones who are around his throne to come up with a suggestion. This is a heavenly workshop. Let's talk about this. How do we entice him to go there so that he dies? Right? Anyone have an idea? And one said one thing and another said another, so a classic business meeting. Right? Someone's talking over here, someone's talking over here. Verse 20, then his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? Verse 21, and he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you will succeed. Go out and do so. So he's, so one enterprising spirit stands up before the Lord and says, actually, here's, here's what we'll do. I'll do it. I'm going to go to his prophets, his false prophets, and I'm going to give him a message. And that message will be, yes, go up. And you'll have success. And that's how we'll get him to go out there. Basically enticing the other prophets to lie, which is what they probably would do normally anyway. The Lord said, good idea. Go and do it. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Ahab, do you want to know what happened? That's exactly what happened. So Micaiah shows up, and what is he going to do? He's not going to go against the plan that was hatched there in the court of the Lord. So he goes along with it, says, yes, go ahead. Go and die. Oh, he didn't say that. He said, go ahead, and you'll have success. But knowing in the back of his mind, it's like, That's, this is all part of the plan. We're supposed to get him there. Verse 23, and Zedekiah, son of uh, Chanana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek, saying, which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me, from me to speak to you? So you have one of the other prophets challenging Micaiah. Micaiah said, behold, you will see on that day when you go into the inner chamber and hide yourself. Uh, that's kind of an insult. And the king of the Lord said, see, I'm sorry, the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, Joash the king's son. And say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. Verse 27 is my favorite in this whole interchange here. Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Basically, when Ahab doesn't show up, you're going to know that I actually am the prophet of the Lord. Micaiah says it in confidence, goes back, and there they go. They've just put him back in prison. What does all of this mean? Okay. By the way, they went up to battle and Ahab died. So, Micaiah was right. So what is all this? Here's what's interesting. God had already determined, God had already judged and said, Ahab needs to die. And he needs to die here. But he left it up to his council there and said, you all can decide how this is going to happen. So he gave them the ability to participate in this. And then he gave the task to the one who came up with the idea, which is, again, 
in any kind of meeting, if you say, I have a great idea, why don't we do this? Normally they'll say, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? So that's exactly what happened, happens in heaven too. That's a great idea, you go carry it out. So he goes and he actually carries out this plan. This is most likely what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. A couple things to point out here. The Lord is still the judge. The Lord already determined how, or I'm sorry, determined the ultimate outcome. But he gave some freedom to his servants to see how it would happen and how to carry this out. God wants participation. That's not just with the angelic realm, that's also with us. Sometimes you can ask, why in the world is God leaving this to me? I feel very unqualified to do this thing that God has called me to do. It's because God wants our participation. He wants us to be a part of the plan. But in here what you have is you actually have God sitting on a throne and he talks to his court. Who are these who were there? This is the same people. This is, this is the watcher angels that we're talking about. This story is about God hatching this plan with his watching angels, the watcher angels, and goes to carry it out. There is far more complexity to the spiritual realm than I think we give credit. God is at work. God is organized in the way that he does work. And so if we are to take this concept and this idea, and we go back to Daniel, here's what you have. And it's really important to highlight this. Nebuchadnezzar goes and he looks at all that he has done, right? He looks at Babylon. He looks at things that are being built. I mean, he built the Hanging Gardens. Have you guys ever read about that or heard about that? The Hanging Gardens is one of the... the uh, Wonders of the ancient world. This incredible building. And, and, and engineering and technological and um, architectural feat. So he's looking at all these different things that he's done. The, the places he's conquered. He truly is that tree. There's, there's not a place his empire doesn't touch that's of importance. He is that gold head on the statue. He is, uh, he is right at that moment heading up the greatest empire that existed and has ever existed up until this point. And he knows it. And that pride in his heart, the Lord judged that. First, he's giving a warning. He's given a warning to, well, to warn him that it was going to happen. Daniel rel relays the information. It doesn't change his behavior. A year later, he's still standing on his balcony just marveling at his greatness. So the Lord went ahead and sent that watcher angel to go and take care of it, to carry out the judgment. Think on that. The greatest emperor to have ever existed on planet Earth. Greatest empire. Greatest influence. The Lord decided he's too prideful. He's brought down. He is the head of gold. Are we, are we understanding the impact of this? That the Lord in heaven looks down and says, no. And I think it's really important for us to take all of these different accounts together to recognize that the Lord is not just teaching Nebuchadnezzar, but it is a warning. 
It is a warning to all emperors, to all leaders, to all kings. However great you think you are, it's the Lord God that allows you to exercise that authority. It is the Lord God who is ultimately your judge. Doesn't matter if you're king or president or whatever, you are accountable to the Lord. The Lord looks down and he sees us humans for what we are, limited, sinful beings. Yet at the same time, promise was given to Adam. The human race would be his imagers on earth, that we would have dominion on the earth. That's what was promised to us. That's what we were told. That's what our role was supposed to be. We were supposed to image God, who he was on this earth as his, as his, as his regents on earth to show that authority. That is our role. That is what we are intended to do. And if you want to think about it in kind of an abstract sort of way, Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled that to an ultimate degree. He had total dominion over all those areas. However, he was not humble before the Lord. He did not recognize his place and his position, so the Lord brought him down. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, which we will be spending time in this chapter here this month. We have the story of the resurrection here. But I want to highlight the, the uh, last part of this chapter. Let's look at verse 16. Walk with me through this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Side note, even at that point, I mean, come on. Resurrected Jesus, spending time with him. Still doubt, yes. Some, we don't know who, it's not, Matthew doesn't point anyone out. Still at that point, still some doubt. So that should give us some encouragement when we have our fleeting doubts and we have our difficulties, all right? Even the disciples did with Jesus standing before them. Anyway, back to the passage, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, if this is an underline in your Bible or written down somewhere, this is one of the most important things to ever come out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Full stop. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Heaven, on earth, that's it. Jesus. It is an amazing statement. There's no parenthetical statement here. There's no uh, exceptions given. There's no footnote. All authority has been given to Jesus. That one who sat on the throne, heavenly host around him, the watchers around him, decided what to do with Ahab. It's Jesus. In heaven and on earth. No, Bible. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, name of the Son, and name of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. English does a weird thing here. Go is not the verb. 
the idea is, is that of course you're going to be going as you go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. These things given. The reason is, it says, therefore, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that is why we go. That is why we make disciples. That is why we go there. I want to highlight something here. Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So go storm Rome and let Caesar know that his power is over. Nope. Go walk up to Jerusalem and let him know Herod's not king, Jesus is king. Nope. Go to all of these other empires around here and just put them all on notice that they're in trouble. Nope. None of that. There's no discussion. There's nothing concerning any of the nations other than they all need to hear the gospel because guess what? There's nothing here. There's no concern at all for what the other nations might think, what they might do, whether governments might be. It doesn't matter. All authority is given to Jesus, heaven and on earth. Therefore, because Jesus is who he says he is and because he has the position that he has, we're supposed to go and to do these things. That's why. This right here was the beginning of the fulfillment of what we looked at in Daniel chapter 2. That stone that came and then filled the whole earth, remember? This is the beginning of that. Turn with me to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. There's a lot we could say here. A lot of things happen in this part of Revelation. But we're going to start at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, this is Jesus, the slain lamb, when he has taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, uh, uh, sorry, 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Pay attention to what's in this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Is there any concern from these 24 elders? Most likely, probably the watchers, right? They're all around the throne. Same description that we got in Second Chronicles. Is there any concern about what might be in the way? What king might be there? What, what leader? What president? What, is there any concern here? There is zero concern. There is zero concern in heaven for anyone who sits in any seat of power on earth because guess what? All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. It doesn't matter who sits in what chair and in what office. It doesn't matter. Unconcerned is our Lord with those things. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard in the th uh, throne the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That pretty much sums it up. There's really nothing left out. That's all of it. All authority is given to Jesus.
Verse 13, and to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And they fall down and worship. Is there any concern for anyone on any throne given in any of these passages? None. None. And I say all this to encourage us because I've heard a lot of people talk for a while to try to encourage themselves that God is still on his throne without hearing any of the power behind it. Because I think it's still such a massive temptation for us to fear what could be coming or what could happen or so many things out of our control. Well, guess what? We don't have to have a concern. We don't have to be afraid. We can be as unconcerned with all of those details as those elders sitting around the throne, as unconcerned as the watchers with the ramifications of what if we unseat this king? My goodness, Lord, have you thought about the implications? No, none of that. The Lord is who he says he is. The Lord is on the throne. And when we say that, we mean it. And so it means that we can step out in confidence when God... And his throne looks down. He is not concerned. In fact, we won't turn to it. There's one of the Psalms where it says that he just laughs. He laughs when they say that they can come up against him. He just laughs. There's no one, no one that can unseat Jesus. There's no one who can take his authority. And yet we live like, it's a toss-up. Maybe, maybe something bad will happen. Yeah, maybe something bad will happen. When this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he'd been in power for years. People have been dragged out of all different nations. People have been exiled. Families were torn apart. Horrible things happened. But that doesn't mean that God somehow wasn't where he was supposed to be. Same with Ahab. Ahab was a horrible king. Cost a lot of people a lot of lives, including a lot of children that had been sacrificed. Horrible things. God is the one who dealt out judgment in his time. And so for us, we can stand confidently. We say, who, who, who are these? We have a task, and the task is to, as we're going, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them what Jesus commands. Pretty much it. It's all. The Lord is unconcerned with whatever opposition comes up against because the Lord will take care of it. I've thought about this as we turn back to Daniel chapter 4. Do you think that our leaders receive dreams? Do you think kings, presidents, and vice presidents are woken up in the middle of the night with a vision, scared out of their minds? Do they have a Daniel? Do they have a Micaiah? Who are they? Are they around? Have they already received their judgment and they're just waiting for it? I know a lot of times we talk about praying for our leaders. I think we need to pray for Daniels and Micaiahs to be close so that when the Lord does speak, 
they at least are put on notice. If we were to continue into Revelation, we would see that even the beast, even the Antichrist, same thing. He's given a short time for power. He's able to rise. That judgment is already laid down. The exact same thing is going to happen. Same thing that happened with Ahab. Same thing that happened with Nebuchadnezzar. It's just now it's going to happen here. Not any different. Is it going to be horrible? Were bad things going to happen? Yeah, probably. But it doesn't change any of the facts that we talked about. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. This is how Nebuchadnezzar summed it up. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Look, look at this. Look at this moment of worship from a humbled Nebuchadnezzar. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven among the watchers and among the inhabitants on the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done? The Lord is not accountable to anyone. The Lord is accountable to himself. He will act justly. He will act in a holy manner, and he will judge wickedness. We have simply been tasked to do what we have been asked to do. Will difficulty come? Yeah. Will tribulation, trials, all the, you know, the whole list, you know it. Will those come? Absolutely. It's been promised. Does that change anything? Not a thing. It does not change a thing. And what it does is it affords an opportunity for the Lord to show his mercy, his grace, his provision for us who are going out and doing what he has asked us to do. Let's be encouraged at the state of the world because you know what the state of the world is? The Lord is on his throne and the Lord passes down righteous judgment. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, the world, like so many have said, in so many different ways, probably in every generation, but I've heard it a lot in the past few years, the world is crazy. There are a lot of people who are scared. There are a lot of people who don't know what to do or what decisions to make or how to plan. But thanks be to our God, who has already told us what the end is, you have already told us what we are to do. You have already given us our hope. You have already given us, Lord, our next steps. Lord, I pray that as we think on the life of Nebuchadnezzar, where he stood in power and how you humbled him, Lord, I pray that even a man like Nebuchadnezzar 
finding the one true God, God, I pray that that would resonate in our hearts. Help us to, Lord, not give up on praying for those around us, for those in positions of power. Lord, I pray we would do so with confidence. I pray that we would be those who intercede for our leaders, but also intercede for those around us. Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted with what's going on, with the things that could distract us, the rising waters, the difficult path ahead. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would stay the course, hands on the wheel, moving forward. Lord, that we would go and do as you've asked us to do, which is to make disciples, baptizing them as a signal to the power that you have over the kingdom of darkness and over judgment. Lord, teaching them all of your words. Lord, I pray that we be faithful to this end without moving to the right or to the left. Lord, that we would be encouraging one another. If one of us falls, that we'd be there to pick them up. If anyone lacks, Lord, that you would allow us, Lord, to step into the gap, to be used by you to bless others. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to confidently walk into the throne room knowing our righteousness comes from you and that we did what we could do and you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray this for the body of refuge. I pray this for your church. I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.